Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to the show. You know, it's over 100 million in sales and it's doing very, very well. And it's, it's a big, big profit margin and it prints, prints out a lot of cash. It's by definition a beautiful business because the top line grows really nicely and the bottom line grows really nicely because we have a gross margin that can substantiate it. And why is that? All great companies where there's mystery, there's margin. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. All right, we are live with Michael Hyatt. Welcome, my friend. Hey, good to be here. Good to see you. So a lot of people know you and maybe know your story or a little about your investing career. Why don't we just start by taking a step back and tell us about your entrepreneurial journey, how you got into it, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So my, uh, I, I was supposed to be a doctor. I went to Western. Western was the only university that took me. I got in for biochem and chem. And I was pretty sure I was going to be a doctor. But after I worked 14 to 18 hours a day, I still only came out with kind of low 80 average. I tried really hard. I was a lifeguard. I had some fun. I worked hard, but I don't think med school was in the cards for me. I left uh, Western and it was kind of unceremonious because of my final thesis. They told me uh, that I shouldn't go on to do a master's. I should, quote, go sell cars or something, which is kind of funny because I left Western in a pretty bad uh, recession and not a lot was going on. And back in the, in the 90s, when the internet was just coming about, it was a very, very strange time. And everything looks so obvious now, but nothing was very obvious at all back then. I didn't have a cell phone, certainly when I got out of school in the 90s, because that was a really expensive big brick. You know, the world uh, has progressed tens of thousands of times in technology since that time. But uh, we started selling software on diskettes and actually mailing them. So we would load them onto diskettes, put them in, go to a place called the post office. Some people haven't heard of that and actually mail it to somebody. I know I'm sounding to people like if you're a Gen Z or millennial listening to this, they'll, they'll probably be thinking I had a top hat and monocle too and wrote a course uphill both way to school. But you know, it wasn't really that long ago before you didn't have the internet. And if you tell people you went to school without the internet, they look at you and say, that's not true. That's not possible. But yeah, there was a time when you didn't have TikTok, you didn't have Instagram and then the Facebook and all the rest you had of Yahoo it. and Hotmail. Alta Vista web crawler. And uh, you have to be old school to know that and probably Knight Rider as well and uh, Gilligan's Island. And I think that we started a company uh, right out because my brother and I, my brother's a really brilliant technology guy and he was coding at a very, very young age. He could write software. And I was decent at selling. And we got together and we started selling, selling diskettes of our software in the chemical engineering world because my dad was a chemical engineer. And we wrote that software. It was a very niche business, but it was very profitable. At 3000 bucks a license back in the 90s, that was a tremendous amount of money. And we're talking US dollars, which was phenomenal. And we built that up, you, you know, and you couldn't, we didn't have VC because there wasn't really, really VC. I didn't even know what that was, you know. Um, so you couldn't just go and have a seed round. And, and no one, that all was, was Monica, they didn't mean anything. It didn't really exist. I mean, people did do VC, but I, I don't, I didn't know about it. I didn't know who to call or whatever. So largely we built our two software companies, another one right afterwards called Blue Cap really without any venture capital for the beginning for a very, very long time. And we had substantial revenue before we actually raised capital because capital does build companies and creates war chests and allows you to put the pedal to the metal. But listen, we, we, um, we had a very, very school of hard knocks building companies and selling companies. And uh, 
And we just learned a lot on the way. And, and I think the most interesting part about the journey in the past, you know, call it 20, 25 years is going through three major stock market crashes, a very, very significant one. The first one was, of course, 2001 with 9-11. But at, at the same time, the, the dot-com crash happened, which was incredibly powerful. It essentially took down the NASDAQ and NASDAQ didn't come back for like 12 years or some crazy number. The next one, of course, was the general liquidity crisis in 08-09, which almost literally ended the banking industry without a tremendous amount of stimulus. We wouldn't be getting money on a bank machines within 24 hours. That was one of the scariest things I've ever seen, by the way. And that's an interesting conversation. So I had to steer my way being a CEO through that. I remember my revenue going up in that time period and my valuation going down. It was crazy. So if you ever want to see a company that's worth one times revenue and suddenly less than one times revenue, even though you were growing and, you know, a $20 million company or whatever you were, it was an amazing time because people, you know, it's when you what see... What year was this? 08, 09. Okay. And, and you know, it's a general liquidity crisis, which was very different from 01. 01 was really a technology crisis. So if you owned bricks and mortar, you were laughing. If you own, you know, whatever, Johnson & Johnson stocks and all those, you're looking genius. Uh, you know, Sears was looking great, you know, but everything else, that silly Amazon, but it's got to go. I think Amazon went down to six bucks or something or yeah. go to GE or some crazy number. I told you selling books online was silly, all that stuff, but it never really was. It was just something new. But then, um, and then the last one that happened very recently, which was the crash of March, 2020 with the, uh, ha, ha, could we ever believe in an experiment where we, we shut down capitalism and told people they can't go to work, which was actually something that I could tell you, I was always wondering for that 10 years leading up, what was going to create inflation? What was eventually things go to the norm, to the mean and come back down and eventually economies come back to where they should be. And there's always a recession. I was just always, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? I know it's not the interest rates, but no one ever really thought, okay, you know, let's say you meet yourself and they came into you at a time machine and said, hey, Michael, this virus is going to come out. It's going to stop the entire economy of the world. And we'd be like, come on, you know, that's, you know, come on. Does it kill a lot of people? Well, some people, but is that bad? Well, it's not that bad, but it's bad. And it's, you know, you know it's all this kind of, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't make that one up. And, and I don't think anybody, in, I think everybody, including us, and well, we're all T-boned by that. And, and there was winners and losers out of that, just like there were in 08 and 01. So, you know what, building companies through crisis, if you haven't managed through crisis, it is, a, it is a real thing. And what's super interesting now is that we're in under real inflation at 8%. And you could be in the 20s if you add you know, food, food and fuel right now. And if you look at every, all the money managers out there now, the last time inflation's occurred was 81, 82, 83 back then. So the late 70s with the oil shocks then. So I don't think there's many people around today managing money that actually have ever seen inflation. Yeah. Right. There's an institutional memory that's gone of how to behave. It's a muscle that you got to build. And a lot of folks, as you said, they're, they're, they're not around today. So let, let's just pause there for a second, because there's a lot I want to dig into. And you know, you, uh, you're you being very humble in, in your description, which is, I guess, a good thing. But we've got to get some more facts out here. So take me back to Blue Cap, because that's, what, that's where I know you from. And that's where I think you, you made your name. How did that start? What was the thesis? And then what made it work? Yeah, so... We had to buy DNS servers to run our current enterprise at the time. And that actual that thing wasn't really working that well, but we went and we spent a lot of money on these DNS servers. I didn't know what it was. And my brother couldn't get them working, so he sent them back. So he coded his own and the market had crashed and it was all over. And what was actually happening is that if you looked at a data center and they were very physical at the time, there wasn't AWS or Azure or anything like that. They were firing everybody at these data centers to cut costs. So I knew that they needed more automation in the data center. 
And I said to my brother, could we sell those boxes that you're making? And he would make it so he took TNS and he made it so simple and something called DHCP, this whole way to give out IP addresses and connect all devices. And we made one simple bet that people would drop their phones, but not drop their email, right? Messaging wasn't really a thing back in the early 2000s, but we knew that people wouldn't drop the internet, that it would come back because it was so viral and it was such a way of connection. And remember when, just so you understand, like there's only 80 million broadband subscribers back in 01 when the market crashed. Now there's billions and billions, right? That really wasn't the case back then. So what ended up happening was that we built a product and we were selling it profitably right away because you couldn't get venture capital because the markets were completely wiped out. So we didn't even raise a dime until we had 5 million of revenue. So you got to take that, like, that's actually pretty, pretty amazing, right? If you think about it, like, and then, so we skipped pre-seed, seed, and the A round. I, I, because then an A round was, you know, a couple million bucks. Now it's like about 20 million and you got some big valuation or something. But back then, if you raise $5 million, that's, that's a big round back in of course. 2005 and six. That was a big number, right? And you were able to grow to that number profitably? I mean, you weren't hemorrhaging yeah. money? Wow. Yeah. You know, we were like a million profitable or something. Like, yeah, Amazing. We, how else would you run a company? Like, we didn't understand any other way to run a company. So the, the, the interesting thing is Richard and I have exited two companies in the majority, which is rare. And that's how we did really well. In fact, I'm going to be selling Blue Cat one more time because I'm in the minority, but a private equity company owns it. And then we'll naturally sell the company. So it's how to sell your company twice. Right. So that's, that's a whole another story. That's another podcast. We'll do a whole podcast on how to sell yeah. your company twice. So, so you, just to kind of break that down. So you got to 5 million in revenue and then did you take on an investment or was that the sale to, to, to private equity? That was way later, private equity, but we, we, we took on uh, five or six million bucks. Which seemed and like why, why the decision? When you make it to five million without any money, why do you then need money? Because we knew that we had some competitors in the Valley that were raising money that we, we thought was obscene. They were raising $50 million. And we were just like, 50 million in 06 like, was like you were raising 10 billion. It was so big. And people don't understand that today, but it was like such a lot of money. So we had to raise something to shore up to get some more people in the company. We were very scrappy. And that's very typically Canadian, by the way. A lot of Canadians run a leaner, scrappier company. I do think Canadians build very good companies because they just have less and they have to do more. So, so you, you raised the money. And then to fast forward, what, what was the exit or exit one to private equity? How, how did that come about? That came about way, way later, back in you know, early 2017. And we weren't for sale. I remember we haven't raised money for that business since 2011. We were very profitable. And Blue Cat today is very profitable. Like it's an 81% gross, gross margin company. And it has some physical appliances and virtual companies. So it has, you know, it's over 100 million in sales. And that's not like multiplying December by 12 or something like that. <laughs> like trailing, it's well yeah. over. And it's doing very, very well. And it's, it's, a big, big profit margin. And it prints, prints out a lot of cash. It's a beautiful business. And it's by definition, a beautiful business because the top line grows really nicely and the bottom line grows really nicely because we have a gross margin that can substantiate it. And why is that? All great companies where there's mystery, there's margin. And let me tell you, Blue Cat's in a business, which is not the sexiest business, but my God, is it profitable? And is it sticky? And it's a little bit you know, like DNS, that sounds a little boring, but you can never turn it off. And if I shut it off at Coca-Cola, there'd be no more Coke. And if I shut it off at FedEx, there'd be no more planes. It's that critical. It's critical, 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 boring stuff that people have to buy and spend a lot of money on. And we increase the price every year. We increase the gross margins every year. It is a beautiful business where there's mystery, there's margin, and you can't replicate Blue Cat easily. It'd be decade to re replicate what we've done. It's, it's entrenched, right? 
Okay, so what, what you just described is the absolute holy grail. I mean, where there's mystery, there's margin. Love that expression. Uh, it's sticky. It's very high margin. People never leave. It's mission critical. Did you know these things going in or did yes. you just luck your yes. way into a phenomenal yes. business? Yes, because I knew once you installed us, it would be so hard to take it out. So for example, if you go to one of our enterprise clients and they've installed like 50 or 100 Blue Cat devices, if you would like to take those out and put in a competitor or do your own thing, it may take you 18 to 24 months just to schedule the field operations to remove us. And you might take down the whole network. So we've seen problems at Blue Cat over the years where we'd have a massive bank use our product and they would screw something up without us internally. And they would like take down the entire bank. You know how much that costs for four hours? It is like heads roll and all that kind of stuff. Like, so it's, it's very, very hard to take our kind of technology out. So mission critical stuff, juicy fat margins, a lot of profit. You know, right now we're, I think we're headed to a, a very garden variety recession for all the reasons of high oil prices, the peace dividend is gone, we have, we're at war, you know, rates have to go faster and we're behind the curve. But for us, we just sit there and, and, the, and the cash just keeps printing. It's a beautiful business. It's a beautiful, boring business. Uh, yeah, I see that in a tongue-in-cheek way and that it makes it so exciting. And investing isn't that sexy. You know, yeah. I mean, a lot of... There's a lot of, you know, last year we anointed um, 700 new unicorns. And I'm not sure, I think the next 12 months are going to be super interesting. You know, just because you have 30, 40 million in revenue and you raise money in a billion, you know, you have a lot to chin up to, right? Yeah. Because even if you were public and you had revenues of 100 million, that doesn't mean your valuation is a billion on the public exchange. That's right. the problem. That's what people don't understand. They always think they're going to be 6 and 12 billion and all that. And I'll ask you just to Google how many companies a year sell for two to $6 billion, almost none. And that tells you out of 700 unicorns, they're not going to get that kind of velocity because a lot of them can't chin up to those numbers. I was going to say, the funny thing there is, I don't know if you follow the, the pay tech space, but Bolt and Fast, which is what was just uh, went under. But Bolt is a company that it's the one-click checkout and they're you know, growing super quickly. And they put the founder on the Forbes you know, billionaires list. And it makes me think, He's a paper billionaire now. The chances of, of that liquidating, exiting at, at a billion valuation or whatever that is, is pretty unlikely. Because as you said, you know, billion-dollar public market companies that stay there are not minted by 30 or 40 a week. It's super interesting you say this. This is what I think happens. And the best and most obvious version of this is WeWork. And what actually happens is you got a lot of people getting super excited. There's a great show on right now called Super Pumped about Uber, which is just amazing. And I think Uber did a lot of crazy, important things, by the way. But, you know, for everything good about WeWork trying to create a, what they were doing, their big vision, at the end of the day, they were taking a long-term lease and switching it to a short-term lease and hedging between those two numbers. And when you had a company that was doing it not as sexy like Regis, but was worth $3 billion, and they were worth $47 billion, what happens is that I think Silicon Valley and investors sell things to each other. And then when Wall Street takes its, its, its lens and puts it on it, they go, yeah, yeah, I'm not listening to any of the noise. But when they put their lens on, what are you, how much money are you losing? Three million a day, um, you know, or whatever. They don't play that game, right? And to exit a company over a billion, most companies have to go public. Some companies do get acquired by the best companies in the world, like Microsoft and whatever, but Microsoft doesn't buy $2 billion company every day. They, they do it. It happens maybe once a year, maybe twice. It, it happened with, you know, Activation uh, Blizzard recently and a few others, but it just doesn't occur at 700. You know, it, it doesn't take a long time to digest 700 unicorns. It's also very hard for a SaaS company to be integrated into another SaaS company. So we know that 
if like Oracle buys a company, or it's not that easy just to integrate them, right? A Salesforce.com is particularly good at it, but a lot of them are not. And listen, there are unicorns that are going to get acquired. There are 10% of those unicorns, which are probably staggeringly important, right? They're just doing something that is so important. And where there's mystery, there's margin, they got it and they nailing it, right? But at the end of the day, it's going to be a very interesting game of musical chairs in the next 12 months, because I suspect that many of these will need a lot more capital. And that's where the rubber hits the road on, you know, you, you see if the emperor has no clothes or not. And I suspect there are some incredible companies there that are cheap at a billion. And there are a bunch of companies that are probably cheap at 5 billion, but some of them are going to be so expensive at a billion. I just think when the price of money has gone up, like it's going, it exposes a lot of things. I think Q1 that just closed here on Q1 in 2022 has one of the slow, biggest slowdowns of venture returns in the first quarter. So it starts to tell you that money's not flowing back out that well. Yeah, there's definitely a liquidity crunch. And one thing you you touched on a few minutes ago, which I thought was interesting, is the VC game, which I think a lot of people don't really understand how it works. And you probably get it a lot better than I do even. But the idea that you raise money from a VC, and then you do that Series A, Series B, Series C, and the value gets marked up each time. So VC1, their shares are worth more when VC2 invests because VC2 invested. And so you have these paper gains across the board. But when that exit happens... And the public markets, Wall Street views it as you know 50% or 30% of what the last guy paid. That's where the reality kicks in. And so you can be a VC who says, oh yeah, our shares are worth XYZ. They're worth that because your neighbor next door paid that and made it... You know, So I don't know. I, I sort of see a lot of it as a bit of a house of cards. Do you see it the same way? I think that... I'm just going to guess that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger would agree with that. And... You know, I think that if you step back and put a, a, a Munger lens on it or a Buffettonian lens on it, their really incredible way of investing would say, that's nice, but where does this company make the cash flow and how does it work? I, I get VCs coming to me right now saying, you should look at our fund, our IRR was 80% or some crazy number last year. And I said, I don't know a VC that's not up 60% and IR last year. I don't know. I don't know actually funds returned, what that's going to look like. And I think, to be clear, there are some exceptional venture capitalists in Canada and America that add so much to companies, right? And I see it every day. I can name them. I mean, I mean I'd love to be on boards with them, all, et cetera. But I would be very nervous if I was in successive rounds wondering what the X was. I'll give you an example. I'm invested in what I think is the most groundbreaking, one of the most groundbreaking tech companies in Canada, right? And I, I, I was the founding investor in it. And the company's called, uh, and I love their vision. I love the founder. I love everything they do. And, and they're kind of basically, but I, when I started investing, it was like you know, very, 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 very early. But when I exit that company in the, whatever it is, if that exits, and I say if, because I, I never count till I see it, you would be surprised at how low my multiple is. Uh, let's say I stopped investing in the valuations or and it's a terrific company. And, and I'm, I mean, they have so many and I believe in the product. I believe what they're doing. But, you know, the thing is, is that you'd be surprised after raising so much money that you would think, Michael, you're going to make. But you'd be amazed at what the multiple really is after it's ahead of you and the dilution game happens. Right. So, you know, even companies that I love that do really well, dilution is a real thing. And it slows your numbers down pretty dramatically. 
dilution and pref shares, and this guy gets paid up before that guy. And and yeah, I, I, I totally get that. I got two questions, and I want to get into some of the companies that you're invested in and excited about. But why do you view, why is VC an asset class that you invest in? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And the short answer is it's risky not to invest into it. So if you take a look at your money and you go from A to Z, you go from cash, which is kind of trash because inflation is running hot, right? You know, super risky liquid stuff, which is, I would say, maybe certain cryptocurrencies or crypto funds, right? With all the risky stuff here, you should have be layered into pretty much everything. So do I think you should own Bitcoin? Yeah. Two, 3% of your network should be Bitcoin. Like, and you should stagger it all the way through. You should also have, like, if you want to know my allocation, I'll, I'll be open with my allocation. Please. Like it, and I don't think a lot of people talk about this, so it's kind of like, it may be a bit illuminating, but our family office has a third, third, third play. And we never quite get there because we're always rebalancing. Third on public stocks, and I'll talk about that in a second. Third on real estate, and a third on private equity, including venture capital. So basically, the liquid bucket is the stocks, and I'm going to tell you what I buy. S&P 500 and a bunch of ETS approximate the world. And yes, I do get caught up in buying Apple and some of the big boys. And I love Google and Microsoft. Yes, 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 I do. In the middle bucket, real estate, I can't take the brain damage to manage real estate. So I buy into the best fund managers I can. And I take a dividend and I, it goes to appreciation. This is a really important concept in investing where I could probably invest in real estate and make 21 to 23% a year if I was running the building and getting in there, taking phone calls and plumbers and shit. But the truth is, I can probably get 15% and never take a phone call. So there's a brain damage ratio to return, right? <laughs> so I, this, I always calculate things on a brain damage. How much do I pay for the brain damage? And the last one is private equity and venture capital. And I've been really lucky to get in early with like, I think Canada's best later stage VC, which is Georgian Partners. I, I've been there for eight years. I did all their funds and I co-invested with them. They're brilliant, right? They really Shopify people and, and what have you. And, and it's worked out incredibly well. So and then I, you know, I, I picked some other VCs that I've aligned with, and I also go directly into entrepreneurs. Uh, just one little note on there, and then I want to dig in. A buddy of mine, founder, an entrepreneur, great guy, was in the fund, the Georgian fund that Shopify was in. Yeah. And so whatever the ten companies were, I don't want to name him because he probably doesn't want this public, but his company did fine. And he said how our company did actually is irrelevant because Shopify returned, you know, a thousand x to in that fund. So like. Every other company doesn't even matter uh, compared to Shopify. So it's going to save the day there. Actually, it was so successful in Shopify. And this is public knowledge that we put it into fund two and to fund three. We bought it in two different funds. And we did something like an 8x return in the 7 or 8x return in fund three, even when the valuation of Shopify was under a billion. Like it was some crazy number. Unreal. Unreal. So... Okay, so so that and and so let's let's talk about the the public market stuff a little bit just 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 to dig into each of these a little more. So, are you basically in index funds there? Is that the idea? Yeah. Look, I mean, like we actually bought a portfolio uh, set up by JP Morgan, and it's just a whole bunch of uh, index funds that approximate the globe and and their worldview. So we get exposed to everything. And listen, we don't touch it; we just leave it. It's boring. Okay, perfect. And then the real estate side. Now you said that that that's an important part. That's a third of a large portion. And is that, are you looking at that for cash flow? Is it money that you, that you use to live on or is it literally just generational wealth, not going to touch it? Well, listen, I mean, just, you know, just on living, we, I actually live very modestly. I did, because I, I, I don't really, I don't know, I don't really have a fancy watch or anything. And actually I have a watch sitting here on the table that I bought in when I graduated university. It hasn't worked for many years, but I wear it because it makes it look like I have something on when I go up to the meeting. 
I don't need a lot to live. What's expensive in my life is I have three girls, three babies. So they're expensive and I'm sure they're going to get more expensive. But I would say that the real estate is, I like the cash flow and I like to see, and, and it's very capital efficient, right? Because when you get money returned from real estate, a lot of it is return of capital and whatever. And that's pretty good. But real estate should be in everybody's portfolio, like a third, you know, and you can put your personal use property in there if you want. You got to be a little careful about your personal property and counting that as real estate, because since you're paying for it on a monthly basis, it's a liability. It's not an asset. Assets are things that pay you. So I don't really count your personal house as an asset. I know everybody thinks in Canada, their houses are asset, but you're paying for it. And until you can get out, it's yeah. not a liability. Read, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, unless it pays you, it's not an asset. Right. He's Kawasaki. He's totally right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I want to get into some of these companies. And but, but before we do, I just want to kind of put a finer point on this because I think it's brilliant. The business that you described, Blue Cat, which I didn't know too much about until this conversation, is really the archetype in my mind of the perfect business. As you said, it's sticky, clients don't leave, it's mission critical, it's high margin. And I'm guessing you have a phenomenal sales force that's just constantly uh, growing that base of customers. What do you look for when you're looking at a company to invest in? If you can give us a top three. Yeah, I spend a lot of time seeing how much I like the founders and can they pivot. So this is what I think about all founders when I see their companies early. They're all wrong. Every single one of them is wrong. Their, co- their company could be even better than they think, but they're wrong. And that's okay. I'm only betting on your ability to pivot and listen and, and lean in. I'm also betting on your ability to navigate hard times. And are you in it to win it? That's the main thing I look for. And I have to like the market. I also don't like founders that don't like math. I don't like founders that don't understand their gross margins. I don't like founders that pitch me and I push them on the math and they don't seem to know it. And they turn to their financial guy and say, tell tell Mike what the gross margins are. I have no idea. I mean, when I hear founders not understand their math, I'm like, well, how can I give you money if you don't understand your math? It's one thing to say to me, look, we don't know because we just don't know where we are at all because we're that early. It's another thing to say, you know, we're not been selling, this is our revenue. Then I start crunching into their math or they calculate things completely wrong or people get their gross their GMV and think that's their revenue and all that kind of stuff. That stuff irks me. I like math. I'm a math guy. So I look for, uh, do they know how to pivot? Do they understand the math? And do I like the market? And in terms of categories, what kind of stuff are you looking at? Are you in, you must have certain things you like. So are you looking at like real deep artificial intelligence? You're looking at simple businesses? Yeah. I mean, the problem with like buzzy terms, like AI is like, I can give you the answer to that. AI should be in pretty much everything we do when you start a company now. So it's like saying in 2007, I'm going to be uh, focused on the cloud. It's like, no one says that today. Cause if you're not using the cloud, then how can you exist? So, so that's going to happen to AI as well. So I don't like that. And if I hear a well, a blockchain company that annoys me as well, you know, it's just, I want to get past that really quickly and figure out what you're really doing. Where the, where's the mystery, where's the margin. So I dig in pretty quickly. I don't like consumer because I think that it's so much money to get those off the ground. So I don't do that well. So I stay out of it. I like B2B SaaS. I like high gross margin, recurring, sticky things. So can you take us through an example of a company? Could be recent, could be a long time ago, something you invested in and just give us that, that story of here's, here's what I liked, here's what I saw, and here's how it's doing. Yeah, I mean, um, late last year, I mean, we haven't been in it long enough to really comment too much. But uh, we met a fantastic bunch of founders in a, a small legal tech company called Minutebox. And they're wonderful guys. And it's hard not to just love the guys because they're just great guys. And that, that really attracted me to it. And a lot of people really like them too. When I check them out in the industry, people love them. 
And they have a product called that basically takes all your boring minute books that every law firm and every company has, puts them in the cloud, allows you to manage them, do resolutions really quickly and whatever you need to do, all this pedantic stuff that you need to do. And there's real laws around that. And also allows you to file to the government right out of that web, uh, that cloud. It's incredibly sticky. Once you've scanned all your stuff and once you've cloudified or whatever your minute books, you, you're never coming out. And I really like the kind of niche and I like the gross margins. I like the growth. I like the team. It's, I, I, I use this in a very positive way when I say I like the kind of sticky boringness to it, right? I like that. I like the B2B SaaS. I like the fact that we're, what do you mean minute books? I've never heard of minute books being a business. And that's, that's what I love about that business because it's a big business. So I, I totally agree on the on like the, the sticky B2B SaaS. The problem that, that in my perception, that's the problem with SaaS sometimes is that it takes a long time to actually make a profit. So yeah, if you can bring on all the customers and you can keep them there for you know two, three years at a time, the LTV is great. But a lot of SaaS, from what I understand, you're sort of not making much money for the first five, six months. You're spending a ton of money to acquire customers. Do you look at that or do you just assume that, that that'll get figured out? I don't assume that it's ever going to get figured out. I just want to know, listen, all companies are valued by their future cash flow potential. I am not a subscriber to, we're going to scale really fast, screw the bottom line. I, I'm, I've never been a part of that. Some VCs do that really well and have exited the most incredible companies. And I know that a lot of these are Hail Marys, you know, I mean, like one of the most successful companies in the world was that, I mean, YouTube was burning a phenomenal amount of money before Google bought them, but they were on a Hail Mary path. They weren't there for revenue. They were going to make this so strategically important. They'd have to get acquired. And they did that. And that, but that's really, really rare, that situation. You shouldn't build a company like that. You should build a company because you can get real top line, real gross margin to funnel eventually real bottom line. But, you know, if you need four or five years of cash to do that, without real scale, that, that, that can be very problematic. It's going to get very hard to do that in the next 12, 18 months because of the cycle we're in. You're not going to be given the liberty. It seemed like last year in 2021, you can get liberty to do anything. And now you know, yeah. in a quarter, it's like, that's, that's not true. I was talking to Gassan Halazan from uh, Emerge Commerce, and they're, they're buying profitable and growing e-commerce companies. Yep. And, yeah, phenomenal business. And and it's, you know, I, I really love the fact that there are so many entrepreneurs, seasoned entrepreneurs now, many of whom came through the VC world that are basically looking at that model and saying, no, we, we don't want to burn cash. We want to actually build companies that can pay for themselves. And, you know, losing money for, for 15 years in the hopes of maybe making a profit, it's kind of going out of style. Do you think that's a kind of a localized view or is that a broader trend right now? Look, here's the truth to investing. Everybody has a very, very short memory. So what's going to happen is, here, I'll predict what's going to happen. Money's going to get very tight. It's going to be a lot more expensive. The Fed is not buying, the US Fed is not buying the bonds at the rate they use. Just as a contraction in the market, there's a contraction in the macro, which will contract all the way to VC and everybody else. You can't, you can't fight the Fed. That's going to happen. So in the next year, we're going to spend time, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume the war drags on. I'm going to send uh, uncertainty drags on the market. You can see the stock market every day, not knowing what to do, all that stuff. And what's going to happen in the next 12 months, it's just going to be hard to raise money and the best company will get it and everybody else won't, or they'll just get very bad terms. And then we're going to come out of it. You know, Ukraine, I, you know, knock on wood is, is solved and we stop that horrendous mess. And, you know, inflation cools and maybe, maybe there's a cut of interest rates or they start cutting 25 basis points in, the, in, in 18 months or whatever. The market turns around and then the taps are on and then the spigots are on. And instantly in that month when that happens, everybody's going to forget the 18 months previous. And it's just going to be party on. 
party on Garth, you know, Wayne's world. And you got to be older to know that joke. But pretty much there's this to me, it's a very short institutional memory. People forget about all that stuff. But right now they're going to be, I think, in a, in a difficult environment. Like if, if I was running a company right now and I was going to run out of money in, let's say, September this year, I'd be worried because that, unless I was like a tier one company that could raise, it's going to get tough. It's, it's going to be a huge change of environment. So let me ask you, um, let's, let's finish up on, on something I'm always wondering. You kind of went through the full cycle. A lot of people listening to this podcast are either at the early stages of building a business or in the middle of it. A lot of unpredictability ahead. You went through the whole kind of cycle of starting a couple things, exiting, being more of a board member investor. What do you see for yourself over the next 10, 20 years? Are there big mountains you want to climb or is it now sort of just do what you want and, and take it easy? I really, really enjoy what I do. I really enjoy investing. I really like working with entrepreneurs. I get a rush from working with really smart people that are building companies. A couple of my favorites right now are certainly, you know, Bolt Logistics run by Mark Gang in Toronto that is just scaling to be just such a gorgeous company. I mean, we raised, I think, something like 100 million last year. And, you know, one of the big investors was IKEA. It's going really well because everybody's getting everything delivered to the home. It's a very, very exciting business. And it's kind of a tech enabled business, not a pure tech company. And that's what I love about it. It's it just so, like, one, so one second, I, I got to ask about that because Bolt Logistics and that you just said it, it's a tech enabled company. So when I saw this and I, I, I was a customer back when they were second closet and then they became Bolt Logistics and it's a great service. Why do you like that business so much? Because <laughs> for the same reason I like great tech companies, because they have massive contracts, uh, delivery. We, we have trained people 20 years in the future in two years. We have trained the entire world to get something delivered to the home now. It would have taken us 20 years. And these guys just happen to be there at the right time. And it's better to be lucky and have the tech. And they've expanded now. They've put in like seven locations into the U.S., and they've got like world concepts and, and, and Kia. They have some amazing clients. And we are so good at delivering and we're so good at optimizing routes and all that AI. We put we have like 40 coders full-time coding tech, 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 just to you know kill our OPEX line and make it much better for our clients. It is a you'd be shocked at how, you know, your question really should be: well, where did Sears go? Where did all these department stores go? Well, they went to places like Bolt right? It's going from a place to these, like maybe from China to Bolt to you. You know, you can buy incredible quality bed sheets by not going through a department store anymore because it's going from wherever they were made, maybe it's Vietnam, maybe it's Thailand or whatever, to basically Bolt to you. And it's, it's, it drops that middle person. And e-commerce has radically changed. And really Shopify has done so much because armed the rebels to be able to create this environment, right? Because you, you have Amazon and everybody else. But Timing's beautiful, trained everybody to take logistics this way. And, and you know, he's an amazing young CEO. Uh, he is mature beyond his years and I love working with him. And I think that that keeps me excited. You know, another one that I invested just in... Just on that, on, before we leave Bolt, it's uh, just to point out, it's a mission critical company. Again, if Bolt shuts down, you don't get your products. And that's the sort of thing where it's a trend with you. You want to you see that if you go out of business, does it critically interfere with, with, with the service you're providing. That's right. And can we do it really well? And is there any reason to ever stop using us? Look, delivery, deliver, if you're like a great furniture company, delivery is a hard, hard problem. And reverse logistics, taking it back if something doesn't work is even harder. It's something that very few people do right. And these guys do it really, really well and have committed. 
it's almost like they're, they've built a new version of XPO or Kuna Nagel or whatever these big logistics companies are. Like if you started those companies today, this is the company you would have built. You would have built this company to do this level of tech in logistics. What was the next company you're, you're going to mention there? You know, the other company in Toronto that I got going in since the, the beginning is uh, one called uh, Float Cards. I really, really like them. They're doing, they're, they're new and they got, you know, a big, big round from Tiger Global. And so they've got a lot of, they're very prominent in Toronto. They're basically running expense management software throughout a company, very uh, diversified and allows everybody to get their own credit card or debit card right at the edge. So you could be a marketing person working from home and the CFO can push money to your card and run all the expense lines right like that. So it's kind of like a beautiful SaaS system that controls everything on a dispersed environment. So the fact that no one's coming to the office, that's just fine. This, this product is just beautifully timed for this kind of everybody work from everywhere and get your cards. And then it's just scaling beautifully right now. And it can all be, I'd imagine, managed from like a central dashboard. I can give this guy a few hundred bucks for that. And, and I, can, I can track and audit everything myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's doing really, really well. And I would give a lot of a shout out to the CEO is a really good guy. He actually, he came from Uber. His name's Rob Kazam and he's very smart. And he's, uh, reminds me of the kind of rough and tumble Uber stuff. So he's, he's very, very good. And, and I would actually say that I, in that instance, I was able to partner with a really good VC in Toronto called Golden Ventures and specifically a guy named uh, Jamie Rosenblatt, who did a really great job putting that together. So like, I, I really enjoy partnering with some of the VCs in Toronto. With, with Bolt, we partnered with uh, Whitecap in Toronto, who came there since the beginning, uh, Shane Diamond, who did a great job. And, you know, what I like, I like partnering with the VCs because they have a different view and they can be a different type of advocate for the company that you can't. I, I see things from an operational founder point of view, and they see it from a money management kind of venture capital point of view. And it, it actually, it's a nice yin and yang. It works out really, really well. Well, and it's also, I'd imagine you're, you're not leading necessarily leading the rounds. You're, 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 you're leaving due diligence and all that to somebody else, right? No, no, not at all. Like I am in the heart of it all the way. And in the earliest days, I am leading the ground. But when they come in, they generally lead the round and I will go on to that. But I'm, I'm into the due diligence and everything else as much as you can. Right. But I do like partnering with the VCs. And I think like sometimes people will see me as a, an operator and putting money and I, you know, and wonder if I, like, I, I'm very open to working with some VCs in Canada and in the US. There's some terrific ones that have really been able to add very, very, like, you shouldn't be afraid to add a VC to your board. And that's another thing I like to see in a founder. Like, you should be wanting to add a money person to your board or someone that kind of holds you to account. If you're afraid to be held to account, then I'm not sure you're ever going to stack up because if you tell me your dream is to go public, well, listen, a VC is nothing compared to Wall Street. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's getting a lot harder. You know, so you would you need to have a certain level of governance and accountability in your company, and you should be you should welcome a diversity on your board that keeps you accountable to the shareholders. I think yeah. that's an important important concept. Well, yeah, if you if you want to have governance of any kind, you've got to start there, and VCs are are the, you know they're they're professionals at that. Let's wrap up with some a bit of a lightning round here. It's the first time I've done this, but there are a lot of questions I want to get your quick take on. So let's try to limit the answers to like 10, 20 seconds if we can. So I'll just throw out a word or two and you tell me what, what, what your thoughts are. Crypto. Young. It's still young, but it's going to be super important. It's just not there yet. I, I believe it's going to be... It's like the early internet. A lot of it went away, but some of it became really important. Like for example, Amazon. You know? yeah. yeah. The office. The physical office. Gone. 
And you need to get into that office two times a week or you're not going to grow as a company. You need to get humans need humans. You can't take it away, but you're going to have to find a new way around that. You can't just video yourselves to death. So the, the opposite of that is this uh, term called distributed companies. Do you think distributed companies are a thing that can exist or, or that's going to go away? No, I think it's going to be called companies and all companies are going to be two to three days, two days, one day, something a week at the office. And I think sometimes you're going to go with weeks and not doing it. I'm investing in companies that have no office. If you could put your money, if you had to put your money, all your money into one company in the world, which would it be? Google. Any, any company. Google. Google all the way, huh? It's unstoppable. They have, if you look, read Good to Great by Jim Collins and you look at the flywheel effect, no company is even close to Google. Google is actually an unstoppable mountain. They're a flywheel beyond flywheels. Um, Microsoft, I believe, has a market cap a little bit higher than Google, right? And they're incredibly yep. powerful, right? Yep. Bing only got 1% of the market. So a company bigger and, and theoretically more important, and I would argue that, but I think Microsoft's incredible, couldn't take more than 1% away from Google. Think about that for a second. Google's maybe the most important company. They spend, you know why I think Peter Thiel makes his point in his book, Zero to One, but they spend all their time telling you how they're basically unimportant because they know they're basically a monopoly. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Yeah. I, I, would, I believe in Google. Okay. Meta slash Facebook. Yeah. What, what, what's your thoughts on them? I'm a shareholder and I'm down and I am concerned about the, the business because they probably didn't see two things coming. One is I don't think they really understood, they really grabbed, got, got the understanding of how much privacy was going to come down the pipe from Apple. And I don't think they were prepared for how much TikTok has changed the landscape. I believe they have to, like, for instance, we woke up today and I think Elon Musk is buying or trying to buy Twitter. They probably should have bought it. I'm not sure if they're allowed to, but I also don't buy I know I'm sounding very silly. I, I sound like I'm internet 94 and I'm saying, what is that damn thing for? I don't buy the metaverse right now. I don't buy that. I need to go on and make a burrito, a fake burrito at, or a virtual burrito at Chipotle in the Meadowland and put on my goggles. First off, when I put on my Oculus Rift for 10 minutes, I'm dizzy as hell. I want to get it off. I like reality. I understand that there's going to be huge advancements in this. And I believe that it's going to be cool for me and you to meet in virtual reality when the products get much better. And I think it's going to get super cool, but I really think we're a long way off. And I think that a meta is an overplayed hand right now on that thing. And I don't think people are quite prepared for that. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't already done so, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And let me know what you think of the show. You can get me on Twitter at RealJohnDavids, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. Of course, hashtag making it. We'll talk to you guys next time.